theyeshiva.net. I want to begin with a story. Many of us perhaps know the story, but I want to go one step deeper into the story. The story is related to these days. It's in Gemara and Talmud and Maseches Gitten, Tractate Gitten, page 55 or 56. It's the end of the very famous story of Kamtsa Bar Kamtsa. But I want to focus not on the Kamtsa Bar Kamtsa story, but the end, the conclusion of that story, what happens at the end. To remind everybody briefly of the story, there was a man who was very wealthy and affluent, very prominent person in Jerusalem, and he threw a huge party, a huge feast. Many of the great sages and rabbis were there. He also invited a close friend of his. And I guess the mailman or the messenger made a mistake, and instead of inviting his best friend Kamtsa, he invited his archenemy, whose name was Bar Kamtsa. Bar Kamtsa was startled by this invitation of his fierce foe, but he decided to take him up on his offer. Maybe times have changed, and he shows up at the party. And when the host sees his great enemy at the party, he is immediately enraged. He realizes a mistake was done. And he demands from him to leave the feast at once. The person sitting in the presence of so many prominent guests doesn't want to be embarrassed. So he pleads with him to let him remain till the end, not to make a big deal, and he'll leave right after the party. No, I want you to leave right now. You're my enemy. You don't belong here. The man offers to pay his meal for his meal. He offers to pay for half the meal. He offers to cover all of the expenses of this feast. I know what I would have done. Imagine you're making a wedding, cost you $65,000, or some people it cost them double that amount, <laughs> and somebody you don't like doesn't come and they offer to pay for the wedding. Not such a bad deal. But when you hate, you hate, right? When you hate, you hate. He refuses, and ultimately he has this man thrown out of the party. The person is so humbled and humiliated and infuriated, especially at all of the guests, including the sages and the rabbis. How is it that nobody, that one person stood up to make a protest, to take on my honor? Nobody. And in rage and in fury, he decides to go to the emperor of Rome and to tell him, Jews have rebelled against you. Tension between Rome and Judea. Rome was then in charge of the Middle East of Israel. And the tension in a good day was pretty intense. This will now be, you know, the Maccabah Patash, the final nail in the coffin to enrage the Roman Empire against the Jews. How is he going to prove it? He's going to prove it through a simple way. He's going to ask the emperor to send an offering, a sacrifice, to be offered in the temple, in the Beis Hamikdash in Jerusalem, which the emperor does. And he knows that Jews will sacrifice it because we have a mitzvah, we have a halacha, that we can accept offerings from Jews, and we can also accept offerings from non-Jews. They're also allowed to bring offerings to Hashem in the Beis Hamikdash. It's a very interesting law. This has nothing to do only with Jews. But what does this man do, Bar Kamtsa? He makes sure to blemish this lamb, this sheep, on the way up to Jerusalem, a type of blemish that Jews are not allowed to sacrifice such an animal because it's a balmum, it's blemish. He brings it to the Beis HaMikdash, the sages observe it, but they decide 
that we have to violate the rules and sacrifice this animal in the Beis HaMikdash simply for our sake of peace with Rome. But there was a great sage, his name was Scharia ben Afkilis, and he protested, he said, you can't. You're creating a precedent that people will think that a blemished animal could be offered on the temple. You are not allowed to do this. So they said, okay, there's another alternative. The only other alternative is we have to kill the Moser. We have to kill Bar Kamsa because if we don't sacrifice this animal, he's going back to Rome and using this as a proof that we're rebelling against the Romans and literally the whole Jewish world can be in jeopardy as a result of this. He's quintessence of a Moser. He will literally jeopardize and endanger the life of every single Jew living in Judea, and perhaps beyond. And therefore there's no choice. Either we sacrifice it, or we kill him. So Scharia ben Afkilis once again protests. He says, if you kill him, people are going to say that somebody who blemishes an animal gets the death penalty. That's not moral, that's not fear, that's not according to Jewish law. Matel mumbekachim yeharek, a person who blemishes a sacred sacrifice, a sacred animal when it's alive should get killed? No. And Epschariah ben Afkilis, due to his greatness in scholarship and piety, was listened to, they adhered to him. And they did not do anything. And the Gemara concludes the story with shocking words. Rabbi Yochanan said, and I quote, the humility of Scharia, the son of Afkilis, destroyed our homes, caused the sanctuary to go up in flames, and caused all of our children to be exiled. That's the conclusion of the narrative in Maseches Gitten, which many Jews learn during this period of the year, including Tisha B'Av, when we don't learn, but this is one of the sections of Torah that we learn. I want to focus on one little detail of the story. You know, it's very nice to blame Scharia ben Afkilis. But come on. He was the last rung in the story here. Maybe you should blame Bar Kamtsa, who went to Rome to inform on the Jews. Maybe you should blame the host, who was the one who threw him out of the house, even though he could have been a little more forbearing and put a zipper on his lips and be quiet. Maybe you should have blamed the rabbis who were at the party and didn't protest. Maybe you should blame the mailman <laughs> who gave the message to the wrong guy. It's true, Scharia ben Afkilis may have made an error, but it's like he's the one who's blamed for everything. Another very interesting thing is Rabbi Yechenon says the humility of Scharia ben Afkilis. An Vasnusa. Why humility? You could say indecisiveness. You could say his perfectionism. The fact that he was obsessed that you're never allowed to do the wrong thing and he couldn't see the big picture and realize that sometimes you got to break the laws in order to save the situation. You can't always be meticulous and precise and behave perfectly. Sometimes you have a dangerous situation and you got to go out of the conventional structure and system. Okay, I can understand that. The word Rabbi Yochanan uses is anvasnusai, the humility of the Pschayyab and Afkilis. Fascinating words. I have given shiurim about this in previous years. I know some of you have heard them. Today I want to share, there's a famous explanation of the Vilnagon about this, there's a famous explanation of the Moirei Naim, Reb Nachum about this, and other explanations, very interesting ones. And today I share with you an explanation of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov's explanation is communicated in the work of his students, of his student, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, the rabbi of Pulna, 
a sefer called Toldus Yaakov Yosef, and there he quotes a teaching that he heard from his Rebbe, the great Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shamtov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, who passed away, Shvuas Tovkov Chav, which is 1760. And the Baal Shamtov says, I'm going to elaborate a little bit on his words, the way I understood them, and try to develop them and apply them. The Baal Shamtov says, the word is very precise, the humility of Shaya ben Afkilis. The humility of Shaya ben Afkilis, an Vasnusa. And the Balshemtiv takes this as a paradigm to describe a certain mindset that people have in their lives. The humility of Shaya ben Afkilis was not just about him. It represented a way of thinking. And it's a way of thinking which we call humility, anava. Now humility is a very, very praised virtue in Judaism. The greatest prophet and leader of the Jewish people, Moshe Rabbein, was praised by the words, Va'ish Moshe, Anav Moed Mekaladam Asher Adama. The humblest person on the, on the earth. Anav is a great virtue, but the Baal says, like everything, Zelo Umazeh, it can also have a very toxic and dangerous manifestation. And it's that humility that the great sage Rabbi Yochanan, who was the editor of Talmud Yerushalmi, after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, is warning us against. There's a mindset sometimes that gets ingrained into people and it consists of four words. I am stuck. I am a loser. I am a victim. I am just a victim to patterns, to behaviors, to genetic, a genetic makeup, to a genetic disposition, to a genetic predisposition, to nature or nurture that happens around me, that happens to me. And in the name of humility, I often tell myself, who do I think I am to be able to live an extraordinary life? Who do I think I am to be able to really live life to the fullest, to suck the marrow out of life and to be able to be a powerhouse of love, wisdom, joy, happiness, hope? Who do I think I am to be able to live a powerful life physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually? Who do I think I am that I can be successful? Who do I think I am that I can be gorgeous physically, spiritually, emotionally? Who do I think I am that I can really, really be a happy person or a wholesome person or an authentic person? Who do I think I am that I can have an incredible marriage, an incredible relationship with myself, an incredible relationship with Hashem, an incredible relationship with my loved ones, with my children, with my family members. In one word, me me. who am I and what am I? The humility says, if anything, God is upset at me. He's always punishing me. The patterns of my life have been very, very negative, very, very toxic. And it's just my brain goes into this negative space where I'm actually always predicting doom for myself. There's a sense, I had a conversation a few days ago with somebody, and it struck me very deeply. You know, we were talking about different dispositions and temperaments of people. And somebody was telling me, you know, that sometimes they feel, naturally, that the whole world is out to get them. Just their natural instinctive feeling is that they could trust nobody. Everybody is here, ultimately, to stab them in the back. And it's not even something they do consciously. It's certain mindsets that our brains, as they today neuroscientists speak about, neural pathways. You know, our brains react in certain ways. It's almost unconsciously. I don't even realize it's happening. But my brain is already there. This is the type of humility, the type of anava in which we put ourselves in a very defined box. 
where we become quarantined, not physically. Sometimes you have to be quarantined physically. We become quarantined emotionally. I operate from such a narrow and tiny and small mindset. This is another in its worst manifestation. It's not humility where I am open to infinity. That's real humility. It's a type of self self denigration, self-loathing, where you're not even trying, where I'm not even trying to do it. It's just my brain literally goes to that place. A very exiled and subjugated mindset. Says Rabbi Yochanan, that's what's responsible for the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. What's responsible for the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash collectively and individually is that people do not realize their power. People don't realize who they are. We think we are tiny, insignificant, small, valueless, pre-programmed victims of all of the pain and the toxicity inside of us and around us. Not This is not a denial of the difficulties of some circumstances, or of pain, or of uncertainty, or of various challenges that each and every one of us has in our own lives, bigger or smaller, physically, emotionally, financially, health-wise, spiritually. This is not a denial of pain that so many of us confront on different levels and over different situations in our lives. Nor is this a denial of some serious issues that are facing you in your life, or of the loss that people have had, or illness that people are going through, mental challenges, personality disorder, and what about abuse that some people have endured in their youth, and sometimes people are still in a situation that is very, very difficult and very challenging. And it's never good to compare one life to another life. Everyone has their journey and their pekalach, as we say, their luggage. And the luggage is sometimes difficult. The Baal Shem Tov is not denying any of this. What he's saying is, yes, this may be a situation I'm confronting, but my attitude towards it, my perspective, what my brain says when I'm confronted with this reality, how I react... That is a choice. That is not part of the circumstances. Pain is not always a choice, but suffering is a choice. The realities that I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with. How I look at them, how I interpret them, and how I see my role and mission in of them. So it's the mindset that is the key. Comes the Baal Shem Tev and says, this is the meaning of Rabbi Yochanan. They were living in a time when Anava gripped the Jewish people. Reb Schayyib and Afkilis looked at the situation and he said, there's nothing really I can do. And here we come to an unbelievable teaching of Reb Nachum Chernobyl. Reb Nachum of Chernobyl said that Reb Schayyib and Afkilis had very profound spiritual mind. And he knew that there was a decree to destroy the Beis HaMikdash. And he felt it's a helpless situation. So whatever we do, we're not going to be able to change the situation. If we kill this guy... God will find another way to get the Beis HaMikdash destroyed. If we sacrifice this animal, God will find another way. So Rebbe Chaim said, you know what, at least let's maintain halacha. Let's not change the rules, because that's what's going to maintain the Jewish people. That's what he says. He didn't want to tell all of his colleagues that he had this Ruach HaKodesh, that he had this divine inspiration of what's going to happen. He didn't want to shit because he was humble. But he said to himself, nothing I can do can change the reality. So let's at least keep the system. Let's not sacrifice an animal that's blemished. And let's not kill somebody who made the blemish. What was his great mistake? He didn't realize the power of the Jewish people. 
to alter decrees. He became a victim to the reality, the way it's supposed to go. This is the way it goes. This is how it's going to be forever. The base is going to get destroyed. And this was the mindset of people. It's a type of humility which is toxic. A humility which basically tells me these words. I'm stuck. When something happens in your life, watch your brain talk. Watch your thoughts. Because those thoughts are often coming from a fake and toxic humility. And those thoughts basically say to me, Oi, this is a disaster. I'll never be able to be a normal mother. I'll never be able to be a good wife. I'll never be able to be a happy person. I'll never be able to function well. I'll never be able to have an unbelievable relationship with Hashem, with myself, with my mother, with my father, with my sibling, with my kids. My life is this, my life is that. And the thoughts just flow nonstop, nonstop. And we become completely defined by them and sometimes stuck. And that's what Jews thought. This one thought that if he has an enemy, he has to be his enemy forever. There's no change. And Bar Kamtsa felt that when he was angry, he had to respond to it and he had to go and form. That's the only way he could find his dignity. And the sages thought, who am I to stand up and get involved in a fight between two prominent people, especially when he maybe has good reasons to hate him? Everybody remained stuck and quarantined in their box. So there was no creativity. Nobody believed in the power of transformation, of renewal. The understanding that you are an ambassador of infinity in this world. This is what a Geula mindset means. A Geula mindset means, I am the manifestation of Hashem's energy in this world. Can you look at it that way? Can I kindly and compassionately tell my brain, I know that you're going to produce now lots of thoughts that are going to tell me how impossible everything is, and how predictable it is, and how hopeless it is, and that the end of this narrative is pretty bad. Or as somebody once said, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Or as somebody once said, and with all respect to New Yorkers and New Jerseyites, we love them both, and I'm a New Yorker myself, said, why is it that New Yorkers are so uptight, at least before Corona? Today I know people are much more serene, they had a few months to chill out in their homes, but why are New Yorkers so uptight? And he said, you would also be if the light at the end of your tunnel was New Jersey. Okay, so these are all cute anecdotes and jokes, or somebody said the serenity prayer in New York is, God, give me patience and give it to me now. So our natural instinct in the brain is, you know, I go to a place of gloom and doom and negativity and worry, and the big one is anxiety. Anxiety and stress nonstop. Always worried what will happen here. And they say worrying is like a rocking chair. It keeps you busy, but it actually gets you nowhere. We worry and I'm anxious and I'm anxious about my kids and I'm anxious about me and I'm anxious about this and I'm anxious about my food and my health and my parnosa and my house and this issue and this issue. And what's going to happen next year and what's going to happen in three months and what do I do next week and tomorrow and I have a deadline here and a deadline there. Now preparing for a task that I have to do is perfectly fine. But the anxiety that's associated with it is negative messages that are not helping you. And they're not even usually rooted in reality. They're rooted in my own narrative of my own reality, which is imposing itself upon me. And in every situation is really depriving myself from the liberty and from the mindset of seeing things from an expansive fashion. What does it mean to be in a different mindset, in a Geula mindset? It means to get rid of that fake and toxic humility. It's the ability to be able to say, you know who I am? I am a channel of Rebbeinah Shalom in this world. Shluchar Shaladam Kemaisa. I am Hashem's messenger in this world. The Rambam writes 
in Mishnah Torah and Hilchas Deis. And I recently started to give a daily Shir Rambam. It's a, it's it's very uh, we have men and women. It's a very nice class. You'll enjoy it. We do it every morning, ten o'clock on the yeshiva.net. And uh, we learned today that the Rambam says that there's a mitzvah of a halachta bidrachav. It says in Parshas Kisava you should follow Hashem's ways. So the Rambam says there's a mitzvah lehidomay say love. I have to imitate Hashem. What do you mean I imitate Hashem? When I'm going to be a copycat or I'm going to Im- the mitzvah to imitate Hashem. What am I imitating him? What is this, like a circus? The Rambam is teaching us that the function of a person is to realize that you are aligned with Hashem. Imitation means that I'm like a mirror. You know how the mirror imitates you? I lift up my hand and the mirror lifts up and my hand gets lifted up in the mirror because it's a reflection of me. I mirror Hashem means I am a reflection. I am aligned with divinity. That means I am a manifestation of Hashem's infinity in this world. Can I see myself that way? And when I see myself that way then, Hashem is courageous, I'm courageous, because my eye is just a conduit for His energy. Is Hashem confident? He's pretty confident, I'm also confident. Is Hashem insecure and feeling that I'm a nothing, I'm a nobody and I got nothing to do? No. God is invincible, indestructible, full of confidence, full of joy. We say every morning from Tehillim, In Hashem's space there is confidence and there is joy. Whenever you exist in Hashem's space, whenever you find yourself in the divine space of yourself, you, you will see two things. There's confidence and there's joy. There's confidence because you know who you are and you know what your power is. And there's joy because you are completely a channel. You are a complete channel and a conduit for infinite energy. So there's a sense of celebration, of harmony, of oneness, and most importantly, of empowerment. I wanted to share with you an amazing teaching that I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Erev Yom Kippur, the day before, a few hours before Yom Kippur, after Minche, he said something. And I still remember the words, and I also remember the tears that the Rebbe cried when he said those words. He taught the crowd who was there, uh, a halacha in Rambam. Didn't really seem so connected to Yom Kippur, it was a pretty interesting halacha to teach then. But it was the it was the session in Rambam. The, it was the shear. There's a shear. The, the Rambam was divided. That was the shear of Rambam of that day. A fascinating law. It's it seems technical. It seems technical. And uh, I'm going to share it with you. But I want you to stay tuned because you will see here how a technical law is really a reflection of one of the most powerful spiritual laws of life. And the law is as follows. We all know. And it's apropos to discuss it today, that in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, a major part of Jewish life revolved around the halachas of Tumah and Tara, purity and impurity. Today, we have some segments of it and some semblance of it, but not the way it was during the Temple times when much of Jewish life revolved around this. Am I pure? Am I impure? Can I go to the Beis HaMikdash? If I'm a Kayan, can I eat truma? Can I eat carbonus? Can I eat the holy meat? This was a major part of life. Yeah. Can I go onto the Temple Mount? Can I go into the Beis Hamikdash? Can I eat holy food? If I touch, if I touch somebody, will that person become impure? If I touch food, will that food become impure? This was a major part of Jewish life. Now the halacha is that a clay cheres, clay cheres means an earthenware vessel, a vessel, let's say a pot, or a cup, or a bowl, or a spoon, that's made out of, or a jar, a jug, that's made out of earth. They would take earth and water, mud, put in straw, mold it. You ever saw a potter 
mold an earthenware vessel, it's like clay, and then you bake it. You bake it in an oven, in a furnace, or you bake it in the sun, in the heat of the sun. Today would be a good day. A nice uh, months of July and August, you bake it in the sun, and it gets firm and hard, and it becomes a wonderful clay earthenware vessel. It's called clay cheres. It can become ritually impure. If a source of impurity is suspended in the airspace of this vessel, it becomes impure. For example, you'll forgive me, a dead weasel or a dead mouse, right, falls into the vessel, or it's even suspended in the space, the whole keli becomes impure. What does that mean practically? It means if I gave a kohen tithing, truma, I gave him grapes, and the kohen made wine out of those grapes, or I gave the kohen wine, and this is sacred wine, it's sacred food. It's sacred food. Now the Kayan has an earthenware jug and he wants to put the wine in it, right? He wants to serve it for the meal. He wants to put the wine in it. The problem is there was a source of impurity suspended in that vessel. So now the whole vessel becomes impure. And if the whole vessel becomes impure, so now what happens is, if let's say it was a dead sheritz, it's called a, an av hatumah, it's a source of tumah, and the keli is now affected from it, it becomes what's called a rishan latumah, the next generation, and now the Kayan pours in the wine, the whole wine is now impure. He's not going to drink it anymore. He's mamish not allowed to drink it. Or if somebody takes the meat of a sacrifice and puts it into that vet, puts into that plate or to that bowl, you're not allowed to eat it anymore because it became impure. It has to be burnt. So these were very serious laws that governed the life of the Jewish people in the days of the Beis Hamikdash. There's one condition for an earthenware vessel to become impure. It has to have airspace. It has to have an interior. It has to have a cavity, like a cup, a bowl, a jug, a jar a spoon, it has to have airspace that purity comes into that space and that's how it becomes air. What happens if you have a flat surface? Let's say you have a flat surface, a board, a counter. It's made of earthenware. It doesn't become, it doesn't become uh, impure. It can't become impure. It has to have, it has to have a toich, it has to have a cavity. Asks the Rambam a big question. What happens if you have an earthenware vessel and it's a pipe? It's a pipe. So it has a cavity. It has interior because the water has to go through. But the purpose is not for the vessel to contain the water. The purpose is to pass on the water. The water just has to flush through it. It's not there to contain. It's not like a cup which is here to contain my coffee, my iced coffee or my water or my wine. It's not that. It's a pipe. What's the purpose of a pipe? The purpose of a pipe is that the liquid should flow through it. So the Rambam says... That clay cheres, an earthenware vessel, even though it has an interior, a cavity, where something can be absorbed, nonetheless, if it's not made for that, if it's just made to pass through, it could never become impure. Not biblically, not rabbinically, there's no way it can become impure. Why? Because for it to become impure, it has to be able to have a cavity that contains something. And here it does, but it's not made for that. A cup or a pot or a jar or a bottle or a jug, they're made to hold on to things. That's what they're made for. A cup is made so you store your liquid in it. But a pipe, what's the role of a pipe? The role of a pipe is that the liquid goes through it, not that it stays there. So even though it has a cavity of tumma, if impurity goes into that vessel, to that pipe, it never ever becomes impure. This is right before Yom Kippur. And I'm wondering, what's, uh, where's the Lubavitcher Rebbe going with this? And he says that this is really the secret of life. I'm using my own words. Because a person, it says, The first human being was created, was formed from clay. 
Aframan Hadam. In other words, each and every one of us is really an earthenware vessel. Beautifully designed, 70 trillion cells, 37 trillion red blood cells, hundreds of billions white blood cells, 100 billion neurons, 100 billion nerve cells. Incredible, incredible design in terms of physique, in terms of shape, in terms of functionality, in terms of mechanics, the nine systems of human biology, incredible design. A soul, the Klecheris, is not a lifeless Kali, it's a living, it's a living earthenware vessel. It has a battery, it has an engine, it has consciousness. But essentially, that's the person, like we say in the Sanatoikif, Adam, Yisoide me Afar, Visoifele Afar. A person comes from Afar and goes back to Afar, just like Klecheris, Afar Ata, Vel Afar Tashuf. And we say, that a person is mashal kecheres hanishba. We compare the person to a klecheres, to earthenware vessels. It's so easy to become tame in life. It's so easy to become impure, toxic, depressed, anxious, fearful, overwhelmed, startled. It's easy to live in a quagmire of despair, of negativity. What's the solution? And the fact that I'm a clay cheris allows me to become impure. The solution is when I remember that I am a tsinar, I am a channel, I am a pipe. Literally like a pipe. A pipe for what? I'm a channel of the divine energy. That's what I am. I am a channel that Hashem's energy flows through me every single moment. And I am the channel through which that energy comes to the world and is manifested in the world. That's who I am. And every moment, I am therefore, as we always say in our classes, I am an ambassador of the divine in this world. I'm an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, authenticity, wisdom, and redemption. I am that channel. Or as the Gemara says in Shavuos, Eved Melech Melech, the servant of the king is called the king. That's who I really am. And if that's who I am, so what it means is that every moment I am an agent of God's love, God's compassion, God's wisdom, and God's infinity. How can I look at myself and say I'm stuck? You know when you become stuck? When you forget that you're a channel. When you remember you're a channel, you never makabal tumma, you never become tummy. Not because there's no difficult things that are part of your life. No, not because you're naive but because you're a channel. I remember I remember every moment that I am a channel of Hashem right now. Hashem is imbuing, infusing His light, His infinity through me. And all I have to do is be open. Don't plug the pipe. If you plug the pipe, it's not a pipe anymore. Then it becomes tummy. You got to keep the pipe open from both sides. If you block it and you clutter it, it's not going to work. It's not going to be a pipe. A pipe has to be open from this side to be able to bring the water from this side and the pipe. The worst thing that can happen in your house is you'll ask your plumber is when the pipe gets stuffed. What happens? The water gathers there and it makes a churban. Or there's a leak in the pipe, so it's not really being a pipe. It's leaking out. To be a pipe in life is not so easy. It's really the easiest thing. But in our mind, it could be easy. But really, it means just remove everything. I'm just a channel for that energy coming through me. It also means something else. It's how you have to deal with all of the other thoughts and channels. Just let it flush through you. You know, if you'll speak, if you're familiar with the digestive system, I'm not going to get very detailed and graphic, but those of you who know about this, and probably all of you know to some degree, one of the problem is when we eat the wrong foods, I should say when I eat the wrong foods, stuff myself with the wrong foods, what happens? 
It's not just the foods themselves are not very nutri- don't add nutrients to the body, to the bloodstream, but also something else happens. There is clutter in the digestive system. And the way the Rebbeinu Shalom created our miraculous organism is that there is that flow. We have what's called the Bnei Meyayim, the intestines, the large ones and the small ones, the Kishkes in Yiddish. And what's supposed to happen is everything flows through. It flows, it flows. And that which has to be converted into the bloodstream is converted into bloodstream. And that which has to be released from the body is released from the body. But what often happens is it can't be flushed through. It can't flow through because there is clutter. There is static. There is fattiness and other ingredients and other entities that really create obstructions. Other parts of the body, we often have that ex- concept called the blood clot. Chas, chas v'shalom. Here again, the circulatory system just needs that the blood should be able to flow smoothly without obstructions. And when Khalila does a clot, it creates chaos everywhere. This is a physical manifestation of the way it is in our spiritual organism. I am a channel and I have to be an open channel. Don't let anything get stuck. So let's say somebody tells me something and it's hard for me to hear. Maybe somebody I love says it, and it's much harder for me to hear. Your husband, your wife, your child, your grandchild, a friend, a brother, a sister. You have an encounter that's difficult, it's painful. What happens? The problem is we're not channels. I let it to sit, I let it sit in me and it gets stuck. And you know what now happens? It starts defining everything else in my life. Don't be like that. You gotta have, Gula consciousness means I'm an open channel. Let the anxiety flow through. Somebody tells me something. It's a stab. It's, it hurts. It hurts. Don't deny it. Don't go into denial. Don't repress it. Because repressing it means you're just burying it. <laughs> you're making sure that it becomes permanent. Don't do that. What do you have to do? Remain an open channel. Let it flush through you. Let it go through. And that going through is hard. It's hard because it's there. And I feel it. I feel it. It's like dirty water going through my pipe. It's dirty. It's smelly. You'll forgive me. And it's not comfortable. It's very not comfortable. Whether it's an experience, whether it's an encounter, whether it's a conversation, whether it's a text message, whether it's a one WhatsApp message, whether it's an email, whether it's a telephone call I get or a telephone call I make, whether it's an emotion I'm having in a conversation with myself or a conversation with somebody else. Don't let it get stuck. When you let it get stuck, it sits there, and now it creates toxicity in all other parts of my life. Be an open channel. Let it go, and let it just let it flush through you. And this is an incredible meditation. At moments in life, you could do this in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. You could do it a few times a day. Close your eyes. Take some deep breaths. And literally... Allow this image to remain in your mind. I am a tzinar. Those are the words of the Rambam. I am a tzinar. I am a vessel, a conduit, a pipe. That's who I am. It's one of the best descriptions of a human being. I love it. You know, what's a human being? And Judaism has a very original description. A pipe. (laughs) A pipe, a real pipe. It's great. Because it's the perfect balance between healthy humility between a healthy dignity and humility. Because as a pipe, I have everything. And yet, there's no ego. 
There's no pompousness. There's no arrogance. There's no narcissism. There's no hubris. As a pipe, I'm privy to everything. Everything flows through me. But it's never only about me. It never gets stuck in my distorted ego. Ego is easing God out. Easing godliness out. I'm not a pipe anymore. I stuff up the pipe and I say, you know what? I'm a self-made person. Somebody once said about somebody else, you know, he's a self-made man and he worships his creator. The pipe means I'm a channel. What am I a channel for? Everything. So I have everything. I literally have everything. But it's not me. It's not my own ego. It's not because I created myself and I'm the owner of this universe. No. Hashem chose me as His channel. So His love, His wisdom, His infinity travels through me. And everything in life just goes through me. And sometimes it's very difficult stuff that I'm going through. And you know what? Let it go through. Just let it go through. Let it come in and let it go out. Feel it. Experience it. If you have to cry, cry. Feel the texture of it. The pipe is not insensitive. The pipe is not dead. Don't let your pipe get rusty. You got to keep those pipes new. (laughs) Don't let it get rusty. You learn. You keep it new. You grow. You learn. You work on yourself. You feel the texture of the water that comes through it, even if that water is pretty filthy and painful. But it doesn't get stuck. Let it go out. Let it go out. Who do you remain? Who's the I? It's the I that is the channel for divine infinity. That's what I am. I'm a channel. And that channel, Hashem sends a lot of things through that channel. And everything He sends is with a purpose. It's a purpose for me to bring light and to bring hope and to bring holiness and goodness and clarity into that situation. I want to share with you a little story. Somebody sent it to me yesterday or two days ago. It left such an impact on me. Okay, somebody sent it to me. It was sent to them by a woman named Dina Gottlieb who lives in Modi'in Elit, in our holy land, in Eretz Yisrael. She says it was one of the days of Shiva. The family was sitting Shiva for the unforgettable Rifki and Gabi Holzberg. Many of us remember the horrific terrorist attack in Mumbai, in India, when Reb Gavriel Noyach and Rifki Holzberg were gunned down, murdered, by terrorists, Rishchidosh Kislev, <coughs> what was it, Tavshin Samachtes, I think, 2000 and, uh, 2008 or 2009, <coughs> and uh, all of the other Kedoshim who were in the Chabad house of Mumbai, and Moshele, the two-year-old Moshele Holzberg, was saved, you remember, by his uh, nanny, who later went up to Eretz Yisrael, and I had the schus of celebrating with Moshe his bar mitzvah just a few months ago, before right before Corona. They made a beautiful, beautiful bar mitzvah for him in MetLife Stadium, right after the Siyam Hashas of Dafyomi. It was an incredible experience. I had the privilege of being there, together with his grandfather, Rabbi Rosenberg, and uh, many of his relatives and classmates and friends, it was really a beautiful experience, Moshele Holzberg's Bar Mitzvah, just a few months ago. So the attack happened 13 years, uh, he was 2 years old, so it's 10 or 11 years ago. Yeah, Samach yeah. It was the middle of the Shiva for Rifki Holzberg. Rifki's parents live in Eretz Yisrael. I have I've met them a few times. And uh, they were sitting Shiva for their murdered, slain daughter and son-in-law. A young woman walks into their home, to the house of the Rosenbergs, Rifki's parents. 
she comes over to Mrs. Rosenberg, the mommy, the mother of Rifki, and she says, I have something I want to give you, and she gives her a little package. Mrs. Rosenberg was quite curious what this little package is that she had to deliver in the middle of Shiva. So she went to a side room and she opened it up. What she saw shocked her. She found Rifki's diamond ring and Rifki's most beautiful Shabbos dress. Mrs. Rosenberg looks at this young woman in Israel at the Shiva and says, how did these items come to you? And the woman politely says, allow me to share with you the story. I was a tourist, a young Israeli girl, secular Israeli, after the army, they go, you know, to the Far East, they go to relax around the world, it's very common for Israeli backpackers, you'll find them all over, Tibet and China and Japan and Thailand and India, a lot of them find their Judaism in those places. They don't, when they were growing up, sometimes they're uh, experience, you know, a very negative attitude towards Yiddishkeit. But over there, a lot of them discover their, their Judaism, and it's amazing. So she says, I was a tourist, and I was touring India. Yeah, I was young, I was immature, I was mischievous. I was creative, I was a little too courageous, and I broke some of the rules, and I got entangled with different activities that were unlawful, and uh, soon I found myself arrested and stuck and confined in a prison in India. I basically broke the law, I did some serious stuff, which you're not supposed to do, I thought I'll get away with it, and I'm in prison. And she says to Mrs. Rosenberg, I could not describe to you how primitive, how disastrous the place was, how scary it was, how dangerous it was, and how, literally how primitive it was. I cannot describe it. I had only one source of solace. I knew that like so many other things in India, the prisons are not organized. And uh, those who are in charge can easily be bribed. And I had ac- I got access to some money, and I bribed everyone on top of there. And they looked the other way, and I escaped. Where do I escape to? Where do I escape to? I went to the Chabad house of Mumbai, the Chabad house of the Holtzbergs, Rifki and Gabi Holtzberg. Why there? She says, all of us knew if you have a crisis, if you have a problem, if you have a challenge, that's the address. So that's where I went to. Rifki Holtzberg opens the door. She greets me with warmth, with love, with passion. First thing is she feeds me as though I was, you know, her best friend or her sister that she hasn't seen in years. Ah, meal. She gives me to eat. She gives me to drink. She relax, you know, she's, she comforts me. She hears the story. And she says, you have to leave India immediately. Immediately. You have to get out of this place. I know that she's right. And I'm terrified. How do I leave India? They're going to ask me for my passport. And when I show the passport, they'll put it in. And right away, the records will show up that I escaped prison. You know, I bribed the guards to be able to let me escape, but I was a fugitive. So Rifki 
went to her closet and she took out this most stunning, exquisite Shabbos dress. And then she takes her diamond ring. She gives both of them to me. And she says, I know India very well. When you come to the border, if you're dressed up in this gown and in this ring, and you have this look of dignity and royalty and aristocracy, so here's the rule. Whenever they see a married woman who's dressed beautifully, with a diamond ring on her finger, they will not examine it too much. They just, they let it go. Their scrutiny will be very limited because in their mind, a woman who's dressed so well with a diamond ring comes from a different caliber, a different status, and they just, they don't mind her business, they don't concern themselves much, they'll let you go. Why, I ask? She say, because they look at you and they say, this is not a woman who escaped prison. This is not a woman who escaped a prison in India, and they just won't bother you. She says, but my passport. Listen, this is not such an organized place, she says. If they start suspecting, they'll start looking, the names, records, they'll look at your passport, they'll let you go. Looks are everything. And the woman tells Mrs. Rosenberg, so you see what happened? I took the gown or the dress, I took the ring, I got out of India peacefully. This happened not long ago. I had to return it to Rifki. So I'm coming to you, her mother, in the middle of Shiva, and lending you, and giving you back, paying you, giving you what I took from her, what I borrowed from her, her ring and her dress. The mother took both of these items, you know, embraced them. This is what she had from her murdered daughter. And then she tells this young woman, I want you to know something. At my last meeting with my daughter, the last time I went to visit her, she came to visit me, I saw Rifki. And I realized that she's not wearing her beautiful diamond ring. So I said, Rifki, makara, makara le taba'at yahalom, what happened to your diamond ring? And my daughter looks at me and says, hataba'at sheli halchalishlichut. My ring also went on shlichus. It also went on a shlichus. It also went on a mission. Indeed, she says, I didn't know what she was talking about, but now I see, just like she was a shliach, and she went to India and brought so much hope and light and love and Yiddishkeit to so many people, her diamond ring also went on shlichus. This is what Mrs. Rosenberg, Rifki's mother, shared with this woman who came to give back these items. It first of all tells you about what type of person she was. It tells you about what type of neshama she was and her husband were. Hashem yinkaim damam zechitzadikim levrachim. But I think there's also a very powerful lesson for each and every one of us. And that is, the moment a person realizes who they are, the moment you realize, I may have lots of stuff to deal with. I may have challenges physical, emotional, social, psychological, financial, spiritual. I may have problems, obstacles. I may have toxicity. I may have trauma. So many of us have trauma. We have trauma and the trauma sits in our bodies and literally creates a restricted version of self. The story I tell to me about me 
is a very narrow, restricted narrative. And that's how I respond from. Comes the Baal Shem Tev and says, remember what brings a churban, an vasnusoy, when you allow that shrama to restrict your life story. And what creates binyan beisamikdash? The antithesis. If the humility of Rebbe Chaim and Avkilis is what caused destruction, what creates renovation? What creates the construction and the rebuilding of a beisamikdash? The physical one and the spiritual one in every Jewish heart? It's the antithetical approach. It's the opposite approach. Yes, I can. I'm powerful. I'm great. I'm awesome. I'm divine. I'm a channel. I'm a manifestation of Hashem's infinite love and power in this world. Of course I can. Stuck? Never stuck. On the contrary. If the situation is difficult, it only means that I was trusted and sent into a more challenging situation because I have all the resources to bring light into this darkness. So if the challenge seems more formidable and more intense, it only means that my pipe, my channel is so much broader and so much wider and has so much more light and so much more infinite energy and so much more love and so much more truth. So I could bring that flow of light into an intense place of darkness. We now move over to our families. And then I see there's a lot of questions, and then I'm going to take questions. But I do want to say a few words about our own relationships in our families. It's no secret that so many are struggling today with their children. Big struggles, small struggles, what some people perceive as struggles and other people perceive as blessings. But people ask me all the time, and we ask ourselves all the time, what happened suddenly? 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years, 50 years ago, I was also a child, I also had a Yitzhahara. But I ever told my mother I'm going to kill myself? I ever told my father, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill myself? What about this chutzpah and these words and these expressions and this infinite freedom? and frivolousness, and precus oil, no yoke, no responsibility, no order, embarrassing the family, completely abandoning everything, sometimes to such an extreme. What have I done? I thought I was a good mother, I was a good father. Maybe not perfect, okay. I don't know everything about neuroscience, and I don't know everything about every system of education, every technique. And my grandmother was a scientist. My grandmother did know how children's brains develop. And my great-great-great-great-grandmother knew science, and knew physics, and knew biology, and knew chemistry, and knew about the limbic brain, and knew about the prefrontal cortex, and knew about flight or flight response, and knew about neural pathways and knew about genetics and intergenerational trauma and epigenetics. My grandmother knew about this. (laughs) And trauma that sits in your cells. Who knew about this? Thousands of years, nobody knew about it. Even today, only a few people are starting to figure this out. And it seemed like somehow kids listened to their parents and went along. Once in a while, you had an exception. But today, you know, somebody told me yesterday... She's very well connected here with a lot of families in Muncie. She says, I don't know one family that has not gone to therapy for some challenge that they have. Incredible thing. 40 years ago, the word therapist 
in some circles was like Muktzamach Masmias. Today she tells me, I don't even know one family <laughs> who hasn't gone to therapy or sent somebody in the family to therapy. It's, it's quite a phenomenon. And what changed over the last few decades? It's not like life became much more difficult and miserable. On the contrary, the levels of prosperity, opportunity that people have is incredible. You remember the bungalow colonies where some of us were as children and the bungalow colonies you hear today where this program is happening. Well, I'm here in Muncie, another stickle bungalow colony. I'm talking about the bungalow colony that's hosting this. You remember the bungalow colonies of 1979, 1978 versus today? And so much other blessings that we have. Nonetheless, so much anxiety and toxicity has emerged. And people are wondering why, why, why. No question that the progress of technology has had a tremendous impact. As always, there's a great blessing in it. We can communicate now, we can learn, and there's also some great challenges and curses that came with it, which I don't have to elaborate now about. But is that the only thing? It can't be the only thing. There's probably a lot of factors together. And this is where I'm not going to give a decisive answer to this because I'm not God and I'm not a prophet and I'm not the son of a prophet. My father was a great man, but he was not a prophet. And I'm certainly loy noviani, loy ben noviani. But I do want to make a few points that I think may be helpful to some of us. And that is, I would humbly submit that these challenges are not coming from a place of hopelessness and despair, and they are not um, heralding an era of, of, of horrible dysfunction and lo- losing our grip over so much, so many of our youth. On the contrary, I think that this is all part of preparing ourselves for a state of redemption. Because, and I'll tell you why, before Geula comes, all the toxicity has to come to the fore so that we can spit it out. All the infections have to emerge so that we can get rid of them. So we are now vomiting all the dirt, all the filth, all the dysfunction that has been buried for generations. It's not even our fault. Trust me, it's not our fault. We are all pipes, we're channels. We, you know, we, we pass it on. But it's all coming, a lot of it is coming up now with one reason, so that you and I can make the choice to get rid of it, to extricate it from our system. And in that sense, it's painful, but it's a powerful blessing. Our youth today, and adults as well, cannot deal with lies at all, hypocrisy, dysfunction, distortion. And even the slightest, slightest antithesis of truth is not being tolerated today. And it's coming up. And sometimes when it comes up, it's chaotic, and it's very, very hard, and it's very, very disturbing. But it basically means we have now an opportunity to fix it. We have an opportunity to repair it. So don't get scared. Don't run away. And don't feel that you're the loser of the century, and you're the worst mother or father or husband or wife or grandparent or person who ever lived on the face of this planet. No, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We have made our share of mistakes. When we have to say, I'm sorry, we have to say, I'm sorry. We have to apologize, have to apologize, make amends, make amends. But you have to realize a lot of this is beyond anybody's control. There are issues that are now coming up that are very, very deep. And they're not being buried anymore. They used to be buried for many generations. And now it's just all coming out. And we have a choice. The choice is either to hide or the choice is really to confront it and to look at it and to realize 
It's here to make us grow. It's here to make us real. It's here to deepen our relationship with Hashem, to realize that we are infinite agents of Hashem to bring enlightenment to this situation. Do not despair. Do not feel helpless. Do not feel that you're a loser and your life is cursed because of X, Y, and Z. No. Even if you've made mistakes, we have all made mistakes, learn from them and realize that this is an opportunity for you and me to become much more aware, to become much more honest, to deepen our Judaism, and to have a much more profound, acute, and authentic relationship with ourselves, with our spouse, with our children, with our loved ones, and with our Creator in Heaven. And yes, it's not easy to change. It's not easy to be challenged to my core and say, can I rewrite my script? You know, I have scripts that I want to stick to. They say two people fail in life, people who don't have a plan and people who stick to their plan. So for many years, some of us didn't have a plan. Then we make a plan and now the problem is I want to stick to my plan. Do I have the courage to be able to take my script and say, you know what, this was good for many years and now I need a new script. I have to be able to reinvent myself every single day. That's what it means. There's a mitzvah to mention Yetzirah Mitzrayim twice a day. I left Egypt yesterday. Today, that's exile. Yesterday's redemption is today's exile and today Hashem is challenging me to experience redemption in a deeper way. And that means even what was yesterday called liberation, Yesterday's liberation relative to today is already exile. Today I need a deeper Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And that means I'm sometimes confronted with yet a new situation to allow me to find a deeper place of infinity. I hope you understand what I'm saying. This is not just nice, I'm not just trying to say nice encouraging words. I'm saying a very serious message here that I hope you can internalize. God is sending you and me a message. Go deeper. Don't be afraid. It's painful, but go deeper. Open up. Destroy your old Beis HaMikdash so you could build a new Beis HaMikdash. It's time to renovate the house. Get rid of the old wall so that the walls could be expansive. You have to go into a much deeper place in your soul to be able to handle and confront this situation from a place of love, truth, authenticity, and light. And now a few rules, okay? Rule number one. Allow yourself to feel the pain. There are painful situations. You don't have to repress them. People say it's all good, it's all, sometimes it's very painful. As I told you, you're a channel, but the water that flows through the channel is sometimes difficult water to deal with. You can feel the texture of the pain, and if you need to cry, you're allowed to cry. You need people to speak to, good friends, good mentors, good people who you trust, confidants, simply to speak to. You need, in these situations, you have to communicate with people. Rule number three, do not take it personal. It should never become an ego confrontation between you and your child. Ooh, my daughter is disobeying me. My son spoke chutzpah to me. What is it doing to my ego, to my sense of expectations, the shame of the family? Don't become, don't let it become personal. These are not your children. They're Hashem's children. Hashem gave them these, these diamonds to you as a pikadin, as a deposit with a responsibility to nurture them, to polish them, to help them to help them maximize their potential. But don't make it personal. It's about me. I am a failure and you're proving to me that I'm a failure and therefore I'm going to hate you and I'm going to get angry at you. I'm going to scream at you. And you have these verbal wrestling matches between mothers and daughters or fathers and daughters or fathers and sons. It doesn't help anybody. You have to realize you were given a shlichus. Hashem has given you His children. They're not yours. They don't belong to me. Hashem told Avram Avinu, offer your child... And when Avram Avinu did, God said, 
Now take him back, but remember that he's mine. He's not yours. That's the secret of the Akedah. The child doesn't belong to you, it belongs to Hashem. It's Hashem's infinite diamond that he gave to me with the mission and the responsibility to polish this diamond to the best of my ability. Don't take this personal. It's never you against your child. Your child has a sweet, sacred, divine soul, and my job is to help him or her see who they are. I want to believe in them so they can always believe in themselves. Never allow it to become a personal vendetta with anger and ego and confrontation. You're in the wrong space. You have to come from a space of infinity. You're a channel of Hashem, a place of deep love. Next, never stop believing in your child. Never. Never ever give up Khalil on a child. Ever. It's extremely important to know that every one of them is a chilek eleikam imal mamash, is a piece of godliness is a piece of Hashem in this world. Yes, there may be a lot of cover-ups, there may be a lot of clippers, there may be shells, they may have had big mistakes, they may be in a difficult situation. But, do not ever give up on that powerful, divine essence that exists in them. Another very important message. Don't take advice from every expert who calls himself an expert. If it doesn't resonate with you, mama and papi know best. If they're functional parents, if they're crazy, it's a different situation. I'm not talking abusive parents. But if mommy and tati, if you know that you're healthy, you care about your children, not every word of every professional is kaidish kadash. Take what's good, take what resonates, see what works. If something is not working, move on. Do not get stuck. The professional said, the professional knows very little about your child. The professional may have had success with some types of children, maybe his own, maybe others. If it applies to you, awesome. Get as much advice as you can. But ultimately, trust your instincts and realize what's really working and not working for your child. Be an educated customer. Do not just follow people blindly because they have some titles after their name. That means you shouldn't follow me blindly either. (laughs) But I think this is pretty sound advice. Another very important thing. Don't be afraid to be a parent. Children need parents. And very often, I'm going to give you a great example. I once took one of my uh, children to an amusement park and uh, Disney World, pre-corona. And we went on a roller coaster. Not one, we went on like 12 roller coasters. They were very scary. I'm not made, I was not, I'm not a big, I I had a lot of fun, but it's not my natural... uh, (laughs) proclivity to go on to every roller coaster, you know, those super duper loopers, you're going upside down. It's a minute ride, 30 second ride, 60 second ride, but it feels like, I don't know, feels like a lifetime. Anyway, and of course we had to go on the front, you know, the front, so it should be as scary as possible. Mm-hmm. So I sit down in the front seat or the second seat, and I fasten my seatbelt, and I know that this roller coaster is going to be going upside down quite a few times, and I don't want to fall out. So I uh, fasten my seatbelt. Now I'm a Jew. So what does a Jew do after he fastens his seatbelt? I tell myself, it's not really closed. It's probably broken. <laughs> and right when we're starting to go down, it's going to come apart. Oy vavoy, oy vavoy, right? So what do I start doing? I start pulling it. <laughs> pulling it apart. <laughs> pulling it apart. I'm testing it. I want to make sure... That when this roller coaster really gets into a place of chaos, 
These, this seatbelt is going to secure me. And then, of course, I'm praying for the person to come by me and check it. And, of course, I'm thinking he's going to skip me. He's going to go to the next. Baruch Hashem, he came by. And I said, is this broken? And he checked it and he said, it's as good as it gets. Okay, I'm here to tell the story. Not everybody who's trying to undo the seatbelt wants the seatbelt to be undone. Sometimes they want it to be firm. They're just testing it. Not every child who tests you and is trying to get rid of the seatbelt wants you to undo the seatbelt. They want you to make sure that the seatbelt is strong. They want to know that they have parents who have clear, decisive paths in life, who will be there for them and who will protect them and who will take responsibility for them and will not waver and be spineless because there's difficult situations. They want to know that your seatbelts are firm and that you stand firm. It's sometimes the healthiest thing for children. Discipline is not a dirty word. Discipline is a dirty word when it comes with hate, anger, randomly, chaotically, impulsively, impetuously. Discipline that's completely not rooted in respect and love. But discipline that's rooted in love and respect for the person is a great blessing. Next rule. Very critical to distinguish between, you'll forgive me, spiritual stage 4 cancer and lesser forms of spiritual challenges. There is a state where a child or a teenager has really, really deteriorated to the point that you may have to shift your methods completely. But they may not be at that point. And you have to make this distinction because this is a very sensitive thing. If somebody is stage 4 cancer, the treatment is completely different than stage 3 or 2 or 1. Or somebody who may have some symptoms. And I'm talking here, I'm using it as a muscle. Everybody should have a complete and be perfectly healthy. But I'm talking it as a muscle in life. Sometimes, children who have been abused, who have been molested, or have been through trauma, for whatever, big things or small things. And they're not functional. Their compassion not functional. Here, discipline becomes futile. It's like a child who has broken both legs and you force them to run the marathon. You're completely insensitive to what's going on. The kid can't. He's incompetent. It's a whole different parsha. But sometimes you have different stages in life where you have to know very, very careful if hands-off is really the right path. Maybe on the contrary. Maybe the right discipline with good focus and love and attentiveness and being there for the child according to his needs will help him come out of the darkness. So these are all things that you have to examine and you have to internalize. And the most important thing is make sure you get along with your spouse, that you're on the same page and that you're taking care of yourself. Don't allow your children to take over your lives because they need a mother and a father who's health, who are healthy. So therefore you have to work on your marriage and you have to nurture your own minds and your own bodies and own souls so that you could be a giver, that you could be a leader. Don't abandon yourself in the project. A Hatzalah, member, a Hatzalah driver who's taking somebody to the hospital and the Hatzalah van needs gas and he says, I don't have time for gas, I have to save people's lives, is making a grave mistake because if I cannot fill up my car with gas, I will not have the fuel I need to take people to the hospital. Nurturing yourself physically and emotionally is not a crime. It's a mitzvah. Your body is Hashem's body. And your soul is Hashem's body. You're a channel for Hashem's energy. Your body is a pipe. It's a clay cheres, remember? The channel, the pipe has to be healthy. It has to be wholesome. When you invest in it, 
according to the appropriate needs of your klecheres, you allow it to become a healthy channel for the flow of light of the Rebbeinu Shalaylam. So, I conclude with blessings to each and every one of you, that each and every one of us maximizes the potentials of these days to be able to try to change a little bit the narrative in our brains, to go out of a gullus mindset into a gaula mindset, a gullus consciousness to a gula consciousness, a consciousness of of profound self-restrictiveness to a consciousness of emancipation, of openness, of expansiveness, of liberation, of gaula, and a consciousness in which I realize that I am larger than all my trauma, larger, larger than all my problems, larger than all my struggles. My soul is an infinite. I'm a channel of manifesting Hashem's light every single moment of the day. That's the space I want to go into. That's the space I want to operate from. That's the space I want to make decisions from. And all of the pain and the toxicity and the trauma can flush through me, literally like an open pipe, an open channel. Just let it go through me. Just go through me. Go, go. Bring it, bring it. And let it go. Let it flow. Feel it. See it coming in. Watch your trauma coming into your brain. Let it flow, 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 flow. Let it go out. Let it go out. Talk to Hashem. Say, take it out. Take it out. Don't let it get stuck in my pipe. I have to be a pipe. My pipe has to be open at every moment. Anger, frustration, hate, jealousy, envy, insecurity, fear, dread, anxiety, stress, worry... My pipe is getting cluttered. Take out the clutter. Watch it. Anxiety. Okay, come, 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 come through. Come through. I see you. I see you. I see you. Let it come through the pipe. Sometimes it's a very long pipe. It takes some time. But you remain an open pipe. Allow the divine infinite light to flow through you and extricate yourself from a place of exile to a place of redemption so that all of us can open our eyes. And instead of seeing ourselves as victims, we could see ourselves as agents of Gula. And when I can do that in my own soul, and you can do it in your own soul, when we transform ourselves, we start transforming the environment around us. It's like when you throw a rock in the sea and it creates a ripple effect, and then those ripples travel. But if there's no effect right here in the place of the rock, it's not going to affect people further. People talk about change the world, transform the world. There's no transformation of the world if I don't transform myself. If I can't deal with my own toxicity, I'm not going to deal with anybody else in this world. We have to change. I have to learn to change myself. When I change myself, there can be a ripple effect further and further and further and further. And then we can open our eyes and usher in the ultimate gula that Hashem will bring down to our world. Bekarev, be amenu amen through Mashiach Tzedkenu. May it be speedily in our days, even before this Tishabav. Amen, Kenihi, Ratzain. Amen, and thank you very much. I'm now going to go to questions. Here we go. I'm first taking the questions. I'm taking the questions from the chat, and then I'm going to take the questions from the yeshiva.net. So please put your questions in chat if you're on Zoom with us. Okay, beautiful blessings. Beautiful blessings to the birthday girl. Good morning, Rabbi Jacobson. I don't know if you remember me. I was one of your students in Beisrifka Seminary around 10 years ago. I just want to give you an extraordinary thank you for the beautiful, uplifting class. Thank you so much. A lot of blessings. Thank you very much. I remember you very well, actually. And uh, at the graduation, 
you or one of your friends wrote a beautiful, beautiful poem about the themes of my classes that year, and it left a very uh, empowering impact on me. So thank you. And as the Gemara says, I have learned a lot from my teachers, much more from my friends, and the most I have learned from my disciples. Next question. I feel Hashem flowing through me. Over the last five years, I've had five, I've had major spiritual transformations. I was on a spiritual high. However, over the last two years, I lost myself. Hashem took it away from me. I feel He keeps pushing me away. He abandoned me. I am extremely stuck. I don't know how to get out of the stuckness. Okay. Sometimes, I don't know, I don't know the exact details of the situation. I'm just giving a general response that may or may not be relevant to you. But you have to realize that sometimes in life we get on the spiritual high, but it's not so authentic. It's not so internalized. It's almost like I am elated in an irrational way and it feels awesome. But then when I sober up and I land, I really fall down hard. So you have to realize that maybe that was a wonderful experience that you enjoyed, but now you have a new Avaida. And your Avaida is Pnimius. It has to become part of who you are. It's not anymore Hashem is going to schlep you out of some mess. You have to realize that you are a partner to Hashem in the work of creation. When you say that Hashem abandoned you, you have to realize you are a piece of Hashem. You are part of Hashem. He can't abandon you because you are Him. <laughs> You're not two separate things. Ein oid malvades. Don't say Hashem abandoned you. The very you is a manifestation of Hashem. So Hashem doesn't abandon you. What you have to realize this, what you have to realize now is that this is who you really are. So you have the resources inside of yourself. Don't see yourself as a victim. See yourself as a person who has the ability to find their own infinite light which is flowing through them at every single moment. Now this is sometimes very hard. This is what Avoida means. You know, we say Avoida, you have to work on yourself. This is what it is. I would also suggest that you find somebody you could speak to on this level. Somebody who understands you. Somebody you could trust. Somebody who understands this type of conversation. It could be a therapist or it could be a good friend. It could be a mentor. It could be a rabbi. It could be a rabbitson, a mashpia of yours, an educator of yours, a confidant. But somebody who you could really trust because they may be able to help you identify certain factors in your life which will help you get out of your stuckness. I love this. Judaism is incredible. You're amazing. How lucky we are. We just need to open our eyes. Thank you very much. You got it. Okay, beautiful. Thank you for all your feedback and your compliments. I'm not reading all of them, but thank you. I appreciate it. Next. What happens if you don't get along with your spouse? You don't take care of yourself. Now your kids have grown up, you get divorced, some kids are still suffering from the years of seeing an unhappy mommy, etc., etc. You're asking a good question. First of all, it's very painful. There's grief, there's grief here, very painful. Because you're thinking about what could have been and what was, all the years of fighting in the house, all the years of a miserable mommy, and the years of children who were affected by this, and now they're growing up, they're on their own, and you're divorced. 
And I'll be very blunt with you and honest with you, and that is as follows. Feel the, feel the pain. Feel the pain. It's very painful. And now, after you feel the pain, and together with feeling the pain, say, okay, but what is my mission right now? I could remain stuck in that story forever. And you know what? Will that help my children? Let me find out what's my mission today. And I say to you, take the bull by its horns and become a powerhouse of emotional and spiritual health. Become a powerhouse of wisdom and love and redemption. Become a powerhouse of clarity and purity. You will help yourself and your children will find in you a source of blessing and inspiration. Can you undo everything that happened to them? No, you can't, do, you can't undo everything that happened to them. Ultimately, they will have to find the resources within themselves to deal with their challenges. But you can remain and become an unwavering pillar of support. When they call you on the phone or when they text you, they can find a mother who is there for them, a mother who is really empathetic, a mother who doesn't wallow in her own guilt and shame and insecurity, but a mother who knows how to deal with it and therefore could really be there for the children based on what they need and according to their terms. Remember also, you have a special opportunity to be there for your grandchildren. You can help your children in very special ways. Sometimes, I don't know where you live and the circumstances, but sometimes you can call your daughter and say, you know, why don't you go away with your husband for two days and I'll stay with the kids. And if you do it from a place of love and kindness, you'll get to know your grandchildren in a very special way. And you can give them things you couldn't give your children. Especially they don't have to stay with them and discipline them. You don't have to put them to bed. So you get the best of both worlds. Don't see yourself as a victim of the past. It's painful. Grieve for a marriage that did not materialize successfully. And grieve for a youth that you craved to have and you did not have. But now... Say, okay, I see this, and I'm very, very hurt. But what am I now going forward? What's now the message? What's the mission now? I want to today become a channel of infinity. That would be my advice to you, notwithstanding all of the messages in the brain that it's impossible. Next question. Was this recorded? Yes, it was recorded. And you'll be able to see it on theyeshiva.net. You could see it there right now. And it will remain there. Probably also Tamar recorded it on Zoom. You probably get that from her as well. Next question. I don't have any questions. Thank you for a beautiful lecture. I don't believe how much... I can't believe how much I needed to hear this today. Okay? And thank you, Tamar, for bringing us together. Next where can I find a recording of this class? On the website, theyeshiva.net. T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A dot, right? A dot, net, N-E-T. Theyeshiva.net. Okay, I want to say thank you so much. I have a question about my family. What if I try to be a spiritual vessel towards my family members, but I keep on getting rejection from them? At this point, I learn to back away but I'm questioning, is that a good idea? Well, you cannot be a source of friendship or influence to people if they're rejecting you. But I think from your perspective, just remain open. Don't get angry. Don't, it shouldn't be quit per quo. You know, you're angry at me, I'm angry at you. You remain loving and try to be there with them and for them as much as they are open now. 
Tomorrow they may be more open. You remain in a wholesome place. Operate from a place of wholesomeness. Don't stoop down to negativity. And then a lot of good things can happen. I'm having a lot of heartache from a nasty neighbor who's insensitive, lots of illegal, noisy, dangerous construction going on every day, including weekends, no permit. Is it possible I should move away or I need to, or I need to keep on breathing through everything that makes it so hard for me? This neighbor is not Jewish and it's getting really, really hard for me. I think all the options are important. Maybe you should have a conversation with two types of people. One is a lawyer from the legal perspective to know what can be done. That's number one. Number two, you'll forgive my suggestion. Is it possible to communicate with this neighbor directly? Maybe an email, maybe flowers, maybe a letter, maybe a pleasant conversation. Maybe something can be negotiated, like maybe weekends the construction can stop, or maybe after a certain hour the noise could stop. I'm just wondering, I don't know them, so I'm not suggesting anything, but maybe you could communicate with them in a peaceful way. If not, maybe you can talk to a lawyer and see what the legal availabilities are, and then you could choose your options. If there's literally no option and there's nothing you can do there, nothing to do to fix the situation, I would not put this idea completely on the, you know, on the, I would not dismiss this idea from the mind. Maybe moving is a good idea. I will share with you just an interesting, interesting story that I once saw a letter, somebody wrote to the Lubavitcher Rebbe many years ago that he has a horrible neighbor and he doesn't know how to deal with him. So the Rebbe wrote, we say in the morning, every morning, Hashem should save us from uh, bad people, toxic people, toxic friends, and from toxic neighbors. So first of all, when you say it in the morning, say it with kavon, say it with attentiveness. That He should help you from the shachinra. But then the Rebbe added one more thing. Each of us has an inner neighbor who's toxic. It's called the Yetzirah. The Rebbe said, that neighbor is in your control. That neighbor lives in your heart. You have control over him. He said, the more you'll control your bad neighbor from not letting him damage you, your physical neighbor will also stop bothering you. That's very deep. In other words, there's the neighbor I can't control, but there's the neighbor I could control. When I learn to control the neighbor I could control, the neighbor I can't control will also be positively affected. Next question. Should I report my neighbor to the city or be quiet and just endless deep breathing, so difficult, I always speak nicely to her? The legal questions consult with a real professional lawyer in this area who has expertise in this. <laughs> I can't, I, it would be wrong for me to give you advice about this. Thank you very much. I was a previously unhappy mommy. Your words were very comforting and empowering. Hooray. I feel that social media has given people a platform in which to treat others in such a toxic way. It makes me so sad. I want to say something. Please be kind towards each other. But I'm afraid to be ridiculed by the unkind ones. Is this something I should ignore, even if it's pressing on me? Or is it my place or duty to say something? The question I have to you is, why are you on social media? Maybe social media is really toxic for you too. 
Generally speaking, social media is a very, very, very dangerous tool. Not just for teenagers. I'm talking for 50-year-old mothers and grandmothers, 40-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 60-year-olds. I know people who are on it day and night. Their kids come home and they don't look at them. My wife told me she saw a family sitting in a restaurant, a mother with daughters, not one of them was talking to each other. They were all on their phone. This one was on Facebook, this one was probably on Instagram, this one was on Telegram, this one was on YouTube, and this one was watching a clip. If it was my clip, Mela, but probably wasn't even my clip. Just joking. Social media is supposed to make your life better and more wholesome and save time so that you could serve Hashem with joy. Not to become an addictish addiction that takes everybody away from living. Nobody's commuting. People can't communicate. They don't spend time, not with their spouse, not with their kids. Put the phones away. Take a walk with your husband. Have fun a little bit. Learn, daven, grow. Exercise. Do good things together. Live. You have to be busy living, not busy dying. Do I use social media? I'm now using YouTube and Facebook and, and Zoom and, and, and the websites to communicate to you. But all of us become so addicted to these screens, this gaming addiction, the screen addiction. We don't even know it. People have phantom, even Shabbos, people hear their cell phones ringing. And when you get a text or a WhatsApp, the whole world stops. By dinner, by breakfast, by lunch, it's a mishagas. So maybe you shouldn't be using it so much. Now, when people are using it for toxic purposes to be unkind, it's very, very disturbing. And you should, of course, you should try to influence them. And I don't see why you're afraid of people who are toxic. Healthiness is more powerful than toxicity. You have nothing to be afraid of. But you just do it in a wise way. Okay, I'm going to take another few questions. I'm now taking questions from the yeshiva.net. Why isn't the host's name known? The one who threw out Bar Kamsa. After all, he behaved poorly. The Gemara says he had an enemy, Bar Kamsa. Who had an enemy, Bar Kamsa? Maybe Kamsa had an enemy. The host was standing up for his friend's honor. Therefore, he had no right to forgo his friend's honor. This fits very well with the Marsha who says that Kamsa was the father of Bar Kamsa. For such is the nature of interfamily feuds. Interesting theory. You're saying that the host wasn't throwing out his own enemy. Kamtsa had an enemy, Bar Kamtsa, and the host was throwing out his best friend's enemy. It wasn't his personal enemy. It was his best friend's enemy. And you're saying, the Marsha says, Kamtsa was the father of Bar Kamtsa, was a father and a son who were killing each other. Interesting. <laughs> Fascinating stuff, Rabbi Huda. I sent you an email last week. I didn't get an answer. Listen, I'm sorry, I get literally hundreds of emails a day. I try to do the best I can. My answers are delayed. But I believe I will get to it. How can I be positive when I don't know when Corona will end? Even then, it will affect a big chunk of my life. I already had a lot of difficulties and worries before Corona. And I'm just overloaded in such a big way. What's the solution? The solution is try to implement everything I said before. And I would also encourage you humbly to tune into our classes. We teach here on a daily basis. I think you should tune into classes. You can also look on the Yeshiva Dandad. There's a series called Coronavirus. Coronavirus programs for adults, for children, for teenagers. 
I think watch some of them. They may be helpful because we addressed this dilemma quite in detail. You can only let something pass through you if it ends. What if the pain is constant? If the pain is constant, that's a, that's a serious question. If the pain is constant, then the channel for the pain has to be open. Pain has to be allowed to continuously flow. But I have to be able to say that the pipe is not the pain. Meaning, the pipe is God's channel. It's the channel for Hashem. I think it's very important to be able to do that. Don't judge the pain. Don't repress the pain. Be there with the pain. Let the pain flow. And I think what often happens is, Look at it very soberly and very sincerely and very seriously. And what will happen is, in the pain, within the pain, you will find your relationship with your deepest self. Because God is always in reality. He's not in a fake reality. And if the pain is reality, at least part of reality, so in that pain, you will find Hashem. But stare at it, gaze at it, look at it. You don't have to run away from it. Because it's part of your life, it's part of the flow, it's part of your journey. Beautiful story about the Holzbergs. Mrs. Holzberg was killed first, so her husband inherited her. When he was killed, his father should have inherited him. So the ring really should have gone to his parents. Am I missing something? Well, Moishala was alive. Moishala was growing up with the grandparents. So Moishala is the son. So he inherits his father. Understand? I want to wish you all a beautiful, beautiful day. Happy birthday, Mrs. Pevsner. Happy birthday, Mrs. Elberg. Happy birthday to everybody who has a birthday today. Happy birthday, Rebeli Yohu, from Eretz Yisrael. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to uh, all of the Jewish people who should experience who should experience a rebirth a rebirth emotionally spiritually and may all of us witness with our own eyes vesachazena inenu beshufcha letzia berachamim bemheira biyamenu amen thank you very much This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.